This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Well, I mean, related to that, there's this wonderful scene in Ibu Mutwaku where Kasim Slamat is playing over the radio and we cut to a scene where Sabaria, who is his biggest fan, is listening to the radio, listening to him play the saxophone over the radio. And in that, you see Sabaria swooning. Like yeah, she's, spellbound. she's spellbound, she's moving her body, she's sensuously aroused by the sound of the saxophone. She's stroking the radio itself. And in that, the object of the radio or the sound of Kasim Slamat's saxophone becomes the object of her desire. And one uh, thing I keep noticing yeah. is how big that radio is. Oh, yeah. It's actually huge. <laughs> anyway, go on, yeah. Oh, size doesn't really matter, but I mean, <laughs> I think well, the quality of the sound that counts. Um, but well, <laughs> and of course, th- these are the sexual innuendos sure, sure. that I think music is able to translate beyond the restrictions of what we can say with words. Yeah. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fawad Rahmat, for the show that explores concepts, theory and society. And we are joined this week by Adil Johan. He is a fellow at the Institute of Ethnic Studies, better known as KITA, at UKM Bangi, or uh, National University of Malaysia. You're also an Ahli Music. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> saxophonist. And I mean, you juggle, you wear a lot of hats. You're also a family man. So, um, <laughs> I wonder then... And I, in fact, marvel that you've managed to release your book now in addition to all the things that you do, Cosmopolitan Intimacies, and that's what we're going to talk about today. First things first, of course, congratulations. How does it feel? Because I wonder about that. I'm trying to finish my PhD, and they always mm-hmm. talk about a postdoc, and then you talk about your book. It seems like this journey. It's like this pilgrimage, oh right? God. Yes, so yes, now yes. that it's out, how does it feel? Just tell us that. Well, thanks so much for it. Um, yes, it feels very good, but oddly enough... I feel like the journey is, you know, it's, it's a cliche to say it, but it's just beginning. <laughs> but in what sense? You know, in, the, in the sense that the book was a long process. Uh, it was a development from uh, research that was done during the PhD. That alone was this huge hurdle which you're going through right, right now. Right. Then the revision of the book is this intense soul-searching period where you have to really question your own work mm-hmm. and make it, in a way, I guess, to use a musical analogy, you have to make the research sing mm-hmm, mm-hmm, out to mm-hmm. a more general readership. Yeah. Because as a PhD student, you're kind of caught up in your, in your totally. whole world of theories and whatnot. Totally. And of course, there's juggling life. Right. Which is why the book took four years right, right. <laughs> to kind of produce post-PhD research. So, yeah. yeah. It's a very strange satisfaction, right, to indulge in that sort of thinking, right? Because you're in, e- in effect removing yourself from, say, how quote-unquote normal people talk maybe in a way yeah, right because course. you're really trying to internalize jargons lingos words even you know in your case sounds from a different time that exactly. may no longer resonate at this point you know and that's a blessing and a curse right blessing because you experience this other universe right that you've really cultivated in your mind and writing but at the same time connecting the dots with the contemporary is not mm. necessarily a straightforward process of course, I mean, that's essentially what the kind of humanities-based academia that, that we do involves, is you get 
quite submerged in the past mm-hmm. or in the the so-called data of the past or the text mm-hmm. of the past but you do have to make it relevant to the contemporary to the now mm-hmm. and also to yourself i might add i mean i think your position as a researcher as an interlocutor or mediator of that knowledge of that of that works very important how you interpret it is also based on your own personal experiences mm-hmm. either through life through your practice or through your actual research work right right yeah you know that's an interesting segue in that so much of scholarship on malaysian studies it's about that work of translation right or interpretation between sort of the formative years when the nation came together and for its relevance today right but you've taken a musical angle so just explain to us again uh, so that before we get into depth about why music what sort of text or what sort of history does music offer well music for one in the framework of this book is very close to our hearts mm. it's very close to our emotions and it's very close to our minds okay is this expressive force that is very closely tied to how we express ourselves with our bodies and then our bodies then become this extension of what we imagine to be our state our nation state mm-hmm. our culture our ethnicity our identities ourselves so and of course i mean for the very practical answer for that is that i'm a musician first mm-hmm. very much like piramli was a musician first before he was anything else i don't know if people would dispute that but mm. i think it's quite indisputable so you also come into into the research or into your concerns for example of the nation based on what you do mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. and as a musician i could see that the questions about my identity as a malay as a malaysian as also someone of mixed parentage also very much fed into the music that i was playing or more so what i wasn't playing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so just to illustrate a little bit about the background i was trained as a jazz musician first and i studied overseas in canada of all places and then i came back to malaysia as a professional jazz musician i started playing lots of jazz music lots of american music lots of african american music But there was a point when I was asked either generally or I asked myself so what's Malaysian music like mm-hmm. and I actually could not answer that question because I was so far removed from it being an anglophone kind of Malay a right. Malay as opposed to Melayu you know sure, and sure. and also kind of negotiating all these different cultures kind of finding attachments to cultures that are not local right so right. the big question that I had was So what is Malaysian music mm-hmm. or what is Malay music is it rock kapak you know or is it i guess the most obvious and the most for me the most omnipresent icon of that musical identity was piramli mm-hmm. because as a malay kid uh, or as a, as generally as a malaysian you grow up during festive seasons or non festive seasons watching piramli on tv and hearing those songs emanating through your radio or through other devices you even hear new versions of piramni songs but at the same time there's this huge question mark so who was he what mm. were his films why does this music to me a jazz musician why does getaran jiwa sound like a bossa nova mm-hmm. i found out later that it wasn't obviously mm-hmm. um not not exactly why does it sound like a jazz tune mm-hmm. how come we know so little How come it's the only tune that we can play when we're asked to play a Malay song yep. in, in the jazz world yep. in the Malaysian jazz world these questions of identity are also rooted i think in a sense of embarrassment hmm. internal embarrassment about me not knowing maybe being chelop quote unquote not knowing my own culture yeah 
So this embarrassment is also what leads me to question and to search for what that is in music. Yeah. Tell us a little bit then about the timelessness of these sounds, right? Mm. In that at some point, things change enough as such that some things, not necessarily forms of music, it could be beliefs, they no longer become live options. They sort of fade out. They just become sort of interesting relics. They don't necessarily live with us anymore in the way that Piramli continues to, mm. right? It just endures. And this is a reflection maybe of not necessarily him per se, but certain developments of the time whereby certain sounds are produced to speak to the restlessness of our modernity or to speak to the uncertainties mm -hmm. of nation building and stuff like that, right? Whereas maybe one can say, well, Pop Yeah Yeah had its heyday, mm -hmm. but it never really has lived on to haunt us in the way that maybe Piramli and his canon has, mm -hmm. right? So what makes certain sounds endure compared to others, you know, given that certain trends come and go, but yes. some persist, right? So what accounts for, say, the appeal of the music that you've chosen or Piramli or, or certain forms that just continue to become relevant year after year? On one hand, you could say that the timelessness of Piramli's music or the music from that era is very much linked to this cosmopolitan sound of the jazz age. This is music that actually was the basis for popular music today that we consume voraciously from um, the US and from the UK, from the Anglo-American music industries. So there's this interesting kind of circulation that happens where the music of jazz and even Latin American music that was popular in the 30s, 40s and 50s gets adopted and adapted by people like Piram Lee in the 50s and 60s. That becomes kind of like the template for national local music. Mm. We listen to it now and reflect on that with nostalgia. But there are two layers of nostalgia. One is we're relating to the popular music that we're used to consuming from the West mm -hmm. because the roots are there. Right, right. So the trace elements, for example, of those genres of cosmopolitan music is already ingrained in us through American and English popular music. Then the other layer is the fact that it's the iconicity that we attribute to the national figure of Piram Lee. Mm -hmm. And also the period. The timelessness also perhaps stems from the fact that such music was made during a period of nation-making. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sonically, when we hear Merdeka, Merdeka, with that hissly, that hissy kind of distorted sound of Tunku Abdul Rahman saying it in Dataran Merdeka, there's a sense of national pride, of nostalgia. That sentiment is there and that's embedded in the sound. Mm -hmm. But it's also because it sounds old. Right. But, and it's also because it circulated over many merdekas. Yeah, yeah. And that subconsciously uh, enters our perception of what that means. Yeah. So when we hear Piram Lee, we probably relate it to Hari Raya. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. probably relate that nostalgia to being together with the family and to feeling an immense sense of Malayness, mm -hmm. if you're Malay. If you're Malaysian, if you see Piram Lee, maybe Piram Lee is that icon of cultural, pop cultural icon of Malayness that you can relate to as a multicultural icon. Mm -hmm. And then you probably recognize the song Getaran Jiwa and so forth. So I think, yeah, timelessness is, number one, I would say, yes, it's timeless, but no, it isn't. Right, right, of course. <laughs> like, I mean, it's uh, in scare quotes, right? Yeah. In that <laughs> these things, while they last, they take on different significances over time, mm -hmm. right? Now, that tells me a lot about, you know, the kind of complacent binaries that 
Uh, maybe sometimes creeps into scholarship, but also the way we talk about history in everyday language. And the binary is between the traditional and the modern. Mm. So, for example, you go to restaurant Saloma or something, and they're yes. trying to like reconstruct mm. the cabaret age, you know, or feel or whatever. Obviously, not totally successfully, but you know what they're trying to aim at. And typically, that's marketed as something quote unquote traditional. But you know what you're trying to point out here, because it was the starting point was already cosmopolitan. Yes, tells us that there was a different rendering of modernity. That it wasn't stuck in these sort of binary categories. Exactly, and also we have to aside from these binary categories, we have to consider the retrospective renderings that we have of the past, mm-hmm. and the way that we charge the biases that charge our retrospective views of the past is essentially what nostalgia is about. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you talked about this reenactment of the cabaret period of the fifties and sixties, and then you have images of Saloma, you know, in a tight kebaya. You know, and then what a lot of Malaysians do now um, is they tend to compare that with how Muslim women portray themselves today physically. We think about the image of the hijab and the tudong of increasing modesty of hijabistas and how that compares with this so-called more liberal past of Saloma right, and Piramni's right. time. But you know, these are all contextual; these are relative. So we're also imposing our own biases and contemporaneous views on yeah. that past. You know, so yeah. these are the things that that we want to consider. But these are actually the things that fuel such nostalgia, that give such potency to things like music. Right. right. What about? I mean, let's talk about the retro trend, right? Mm. In hipster music yeah, culture. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before in this show. We've talked about Nirvana. We can attribute the same nostalgia that we have with Pyramid that we do with Nirvana for mm. those of us in our age group. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a necessary stage, right? In that. The critical move comes after the comparison doesn't work. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, cause it's hard not to contrast the way things were and the way things are, and then to kind of do a, you know, subtraction. You know, what's yeah. lost and what's gained, right? I think, and that's part of the fun of history in a way. But of course. like you say, the critical move is in noticing that well, these terms are very limited because yes. they're biases in our approach, right? So, how would you characterize then the story of Modernization since then, right? Because are we looking at competing modernizations? Are we looking at hybrid modernizations? I mean, you know, we have to go for a break in three minutes, just so sure. you know. But to kind of whet our appetite for yeah. the deeper discussion this brings, like, how would you characterize then our modernization, given yeah. you know the strange permutations? Well, modernization is a very loaded term, but of course we can deal with the concept of modernity as it is understood. In the period of the post-industrial revolution, we can think about modernization as the rise of the capitalist economy and colonial polities throughout the world. We can think about modernization as the introduction of new technologies, but then that also becomes very problematic because there are different technologies for different times that mm-hmm. represent newness, that represent change. I like to think about it as contextual modernities. Maybe like mm-hmm. we can think about it as diverse mm-hmm. modernizations that are happening in different periods at different times, mm-hmm. or diverse changes, a diversity yeah. of changes. Yeah. But where it gets really interesting is when all these different types of conceptions of modernity at different points of time converge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, that's where we get some really interesting interactions, and that's that's pretty much what I'm interested in. Wonderful. So let's talk more about that uh, in the second part of the show. But I think you've given a great sketch of the big picture that informs your inquiry in cosmopolitan intimacies. 
Uh, and by you, I mean Adil Johan, who's our guest today, to talk about his project on interpreting Malay film music of the independence era for our relevance today. This is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fawad Rahmat. This is Night School. We are joined this week by Adil Johan, Research Fellow at the Institute of Ethnic Studies, also known as KITA at UKM Bangi, the National University of Malaysia. He is also a saxophonist. Tenor, correct? Oh, no, actually, I play more soprano now. Oh, soprano now, yeah, okay. But, but both uh, E-flat, isn't it? Uh, so- B soprano flat, is in B-flat. Oh, B-flat. Uh, tenor is in B-flat, yeah. Alto yeah. is in E-flat. Yeah. So, Fun yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> old knowledge now, uh, a bit rusty. But, okay, so I want to start off with Ibu Mertuaku, oh, which is one of my film. favorite yeah, films. Me too. <laughs> I get hooked more and more. And maybe that's why I haven't finished my PhD, because I want to keep great. watching that film. I mean, but that's, that's a great film. I mean, I, I mean, that's the one film that I like to show to friends who are not from Malaysia, yeah. or even to Malaysian friends that have never seen local films from that era. Yeah. And from what I remember, you've taken on quite a legendary thesis to argue <laughs> that contrary to, I guess, prevalent assumption of the film as being about a tension between modernity and the past... Mm. It actually celebrates modernity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, tell us a bit more about that. Um, the only reason why most people who have analysed the film say that say that there is this tension is because this is a narrative device that's very... That's the natural thing to do. You have Malaya, or Singapore more specifically, in the 19, early 1960s. Malaysia is a brand new state. And you also have these competing notions of Malay society becoming more modern mm-hmm. in contention with the traditions of the past and the right. conceptions of, of what is expected of a Malay. So in looking at Ibun Matuaku, in the narrative of these divisions of class between P. Ramni's character and his wife from a very well-to-do family, we tend to see the tension between two protagonists, two Romeo-Juliet-style protagonists that cannot be together because of economic conditions. However, when you look at the richness of music that is being performed and being portrayed in such a positive light as yeah. well in the film, that's when you start to question, well, I mean, is modernity the enemy here? Right, right. Because P. Ramli's uh, character, Kasim Slamat, is this consummate jazz musician that plays the saxophone, that sings, that records on the radio. He is, of course, of low social status, but he performs this very cosmopolitan style of Malay cabaret jazz music. And that's a very strong part of his identity. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of the film, the moral dilemma doesn't really centre around him being a musician, and that's a bad thing. In fact, him being a musician is champion, mm-hmm. naturally, because Piramni is also a musician. Mm-hmm. So that's where I start to see, well, the music is modern and cosmopolitan. Of course, the tension between the two classes is, you know, this can be seen as a, as a contestation between modernity and tradition. Mm-hmm. However... When we look at the music and how it's almost celebrated, yeah. I argued that this is a kind of conciliatory approach towards modernity. Mm-hmm. In fact, I feel that these cosmopolitan musical practices that we see as modern back then were actually very much internal and a part of Malay culture and society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, another level deeper, Malay society is very pluralistic, is very diverse, and it's very cosmopolitan. Yeah. And we can even trace this cosmopolitanism or this diversity prior to colonial contact with the diversity of exchanges that we've had in Asia and within the Malay world itself. Yeah, yeah. So the reason why 
we are reading films like Ibu Mentuaku as this dichotomous tension between the new and the old. It's also because our construction of the nation state today mm-hmm. or in present day and how that has kind of imposed very rigid boundaries on what we understand to be our national identity and culture. Yeah. It's interesting too that you note how much of, you know, the fun-loving musicality, uh, the, the sensibility that's so tied to just celebrating the modern reflects how at home Malay culture is with that. You know, it's mm-hmm. not really depicted as intention, you know, which is the situation that is today, right? When the middle class rises, certain attitudes and ethics of, you know, a defensiveness comes out as well to protect privileges, blah, blah, which was not necessarily there at that time, right? So we have to kind of tune that off to kind of really feel what's going on. But tell us a little bit more about how music is not just a form of expressing sentiment, but also a way of making sense of things, right? Because you can look at a cultural text as having imprints of its time, Mm. but you can also look at it as a way of thinking too, Mm -hmm. right? It's a way of processing what's going on. And that's one one of the reasons why I do like Ibu Murtoku is because that's what he was trying to do when he found the new home, Mami and Chombi. Mm. Right, music then becomes a way for him to recover and try to like make sense of where he he was at that time. Mm. You know, whereas in the earlier period, it seems like music was just this thing that he would give as a gift to Sabaria, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so tell us a bit about the uses of music at that time, like, because I want to bring back to the interesting point that you mentioned earlier: how music moved people. Mm. Right, it's a historical event because unlike legal documents, unlike constitutional rhetoric or whatever, music speaks to your body, mm-hmm. right? So tell us a bit then about how music is deployed and how you use that in your book. Well, I mean, related to that, there's this wonderful scene in Ibu Mutwaku where Kasim Slamat is playing over the radio and we cut to a scene where Sabaria, who is his biggest fan, is listening to the radio, listening to him play the saxophone over the radio. And in that, you see... Sabaria swooning, like yeah, she's, spellbound. she's spellbound, she's moving her body, she's sensuously aroused by the sound of the saxophone. She's stroking the radio itself. And in that, the object of the radio or the sound of Kasim Slamat's saxophone becomes the object of her desire. And one uh, thing I keep noticing yeah. is how big that radio is. Oh, yeah. It's actually huge. <laughs> anyway, go on, yeah. Uh, size doesn't really matter, but I mean... <laughs> I think well, it's the quality of the sound that counts. Um, <laughs> but well, and of course, <laughs> these are the sexual innuendos sure, sure. that I think music is able to translate beyond the restrictions of what we can say with words. Yeah. Where music works really well is this. There's this common misconception that music is a language. Unfortunately, you hear a lot of musicians say that, yeah, I know music's a language, you know, like it's I, a speak, universal I language. speak jazz, he speaks metal. <laughs> but actually, that's quite flawed, which is fine, it's fine. I mean, for me, music is a bit more than language, I would say that. For those of you musician friends of mine who are insulted, I, I apologize. Tell us a bit more <laughs> about the, the more. <laughs> music is, is more than language because language operates with specific codes, with specific meanings. Music... I could play a major scale and of course in the Western context that is emotionally interpreted as happy. However, that's not necessarily so in other cultures. So music actually works with words sometimes, especially in pop music. It works in films, it works with narratives, it works with visuals, but more so it works within the cultural context 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And the cultural context is always very complex. It works between the relationship of the producer of music and the receiver or consumer of music mm-hmm. as well. So, number one, the reason why it's important but also very difficult to analyze socially and culturally is because there are many meanings that can be attributed to one musical note, phrase or passage. Yeah. Where the analysis of popular music helps, to perhaps my work, is that I now marry that with how music is articulated through the narrative of a film. Mm-hmm. So how that music and all those sounds or cultural sounds work in tandem with the narrative of the film. Mm-hmm. Sometimes film music is a very powerful thing. So, I mean, I could talk about music, but what my real method of analysis is specifically film music and how that film music works either to support an emotional narrative or plot device, but it can also contradict it. Mm-hmm. When you have this contradiction, that's when you start getting layers of subtext in the experience of the narrative of the film. Mm-hmm. You can't experience that with a silent film, of course. Right, right. For example, you can have a maliciously violent scene in a film accompanied by a very feel-good, happy song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that creates all sorts of interpretations. Right, um, right. But I think you need to steer me back to, to my original <laughs> No, no, point, it, it, you're, you're hitting now. all the right notes yeah. in that Nobody is in control of how music is used. I think that's the interesting subtext here in that you can offer an explanation Mm -hmm. for when it fits with a certain scene. Mm -hmm. But like you said, there's a call and response, right? And in fact, in a lot of ways, one can read Ibu Mertuaku as how music can often also mislead us because Mm, so much of their romance was cultivated in distance through music rather than... Mm -hmm you know, the actual part about actually building a household together, <laughs> yeah, which they both course. failed at. <laughs> so it's, it's really like a good testament to the follies of youthful love in a way, right? Yes, but course. I like it that the film is so historically sensitive. Okay. So it depicts a ferry, it depicts a train. He goes, mm-hmm. you know, all over the nation and, and he, he blinds himself in Singapore, mm-hmm. right? So the notion of severing which you know anticipates yeah. the secession <laughs> that yes, Singapore is going to have, right? Yeah, so it's so just symbolic. it really could sense the historical mood at the time, which oh, yeah, it does so brilliantly, you know. And music travels with that, you know. Um, so in a lot of ways, it speaks to the ethereal quality of music, mm-hmm. right? And it's something you can moves you, but you can't quite hold, yeah. right? And that's sort of the suffering and pleasures of the film oh, yeah. centers around that. But you also have paid attention to Alibaba Bujanglapo. Oh yeah, yeah, most recently. Okay, so what stands out to you about that film? So the most interesting part of the film, you guys know this phrase? Sounds Japanese. Sounds Japanese. It is is in Japanese. So that's the scene for our listeners. Uh, That's the scene in Alibaba Bujang Lapo where the chief thief, played by Piramli, opens the magical cave. So that phrase is what he sings it's the equivalent to the open sesame that's commonly heard in the Alibaba stories, mm-hmm. right? But the amazing thing about this phrase is if you are privy to Malay circles, right, we all like roll on the floor laughing like when we hear that. Why? So I, I wanted to know why. Why that's is this so funny? And, and why is this so funny to us? And how come we can really relate? And I mean, it creates both a sense of also um, alienation but also affinity when yeah. you understand it. And of course, number one is in Javanese. But how come so many of us in the Malay, Malaysian context know it? Yeah. Some of us do. So I started researching the meaning behind the phrase. Okay. And the phrase is actually very lewd and crass 
it's basically with my greatest, most resolute will, the deity Semar wants to take a dump. Wow. <laughs> or wants to defecate. And then I started thinking, well, there are many different ways that you can interpret it. And I, I started searching through the internet for these meanings. And it could also mean my will is so resolute, you know, that the deity Semar will defecate. So it's like your, your strength of will is so strong. Then I started thinking about, wait, who is this Semar fleur? Okay, so Semar is actually a deity or a toko that's uh, very common in Javanese wayang kulit and also in Malay wayang kulit. Semar is this, is this kind of the god of, he's kind of like the Loki of Malay mythology. He's the huh. god of laughter, of humor. There's always a lot of flatulent related jokes associated with him when you watch wayang kulit. Then I started realizing, wait, so there's this interesting kind of intertextuality between the screen of the wayang and the screen of P. Ramli's film and how that there's reference. Then wait, this is a Malay film. Why is he referring to Javanese culture? Because in our intimate knowledge as Malays, right, in Malay culture, the Javanese are always kind of like our rivals. Hmm, okay. Historically, yeah. we've always had this contestation and rivalry between Javanese and Malays. And also, this dates back to pre-colonial wars and, and conflicts. And in that world, in the 60s of the 50s and the 60s, there were a lot of Javanese that worked in Malay film productions along with Piramli. In fact, Piramli's most foremost lyric writer is S. Sudarmaji, mm -hmm. who has a very Javanese name. Eventually became a director uh, and too. Eventually, one, right? Yeah. So, what does this mean, though? Then, right? And why? Then I started thinking about you know that practice that we have when you know when you go into the forest and you need to relieve yourself. Then you say, "Minta izin datuk." Saya nak kencing, blah blah blah. You know, yeah, I, would, I like to relieve myself. From the spirits, you ask for right? permission. There's like a panel in Matsum which talks about that. For me, these are very intimate practices and knowledges that we have about our own culture that we don't talk about in official discourses. Yeah. And also this kind of, this being able to mask profanities through Javanese was a very brilliant move in the 1960s where a lot of the films that Piramni produced would have to go through British censorship. Mm. Right? But of course, for the local audience that was watching, they would pick up on these things and it would be very funny. This, these are the kind of like um, these are kind of basically I, I know I, I drew on a lot of oh, no, no, this parent examples it's really but, interesting yeah. because I think there's a lot of coding that happens oh, in yeah. a lot of these films and this is what I wonder now okay before I get to that I have a question about the Javanese is it court Javanese or vernacular apparently it's court Javanese oh, interesting, yeah. interesting okay on, on another note <laughs> you know and this is maybe the way that Malays speak or something that's unique to the language itself that so much of it is tonal so much of it is indirect, so much of it is berlapi. Mm -hmm. And this translates to the films as well, right? Of that course. There's so much serenading, withholding, delaying and detouring rather than just sort of the, you know, more, I guess, modern Western infused attitudes of acquisition or, mm. or just, you know, entitlement, right? So, I mean, long story short would be the Kasim Slama and Sabaria sort of radio scene where you know, so much of their investment happens far apart. And even when they meet, when they're in person, they don't look at each other directly, mm. so on and so forth. So how does this translate to the politics of those films, right? Mm. For example, you can have a lot of racy scenes in the film like Galora, for example, mm -hmm. that would not have a kissing scene. Like yeah. everything except <coughs> actual contact, except right? Yeah. So what's going on there, right? Because you would presume at that time, things were a bit more open and less frigid and less paranoid when yeah, it comes to those yeah, things, yeah. you know. 
but at the same time, they were so hesitant about being overt about it. So what's your sense, you know, having seen so many films and written a book about them now? This brings us back to this whole idea of this retrospective interpretation that we have of the past and of that era. We have this misconception that it's a more liberal era, that is more free. Mm. When in fact, a lot of these films, as I mentioned earlier, were under British censorship. And the British of the 1960s were quite conservative, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Markedly conservative to how they are now. And also, vernacular Malay films also had to pander to a largely illiterate and actually more traditional Malay audience or Malay-speaking audience with very conservative cultural values, also rooted in Islam. Mm-hmm. So issues of decency, for example, are some things that actually are coming from the ground mm-hmm. and coming from the need to appeal to this, to not offend, to appeal and to not offend such audiences. We have this tendency, it's, it's quite misleading, right, to think about those times as freer times. And of course, you also have British censorship laws, which are also you can see in the censorship laws of today, which we've inherited from them. So they were equally as sensitive. So for example, in Alibaba Bujang Lapok, when they first recorded, when they first started filming it, P. Ramni directed all the actors to speak in this very strong Arabized Malay accent. Yeah. Like very like it was hilarious. It was hilarious for the staff. It was very tough for Norma Dia as mm. well, who was interviewed about it in a film magazine. But when it reached the census, the final cut reached the census, they were denied. Mm-hmm. And they were told you can't release it. It's too offensive to the Singaporean Arab community, mm-hmm. which of course is quite well endowed at that point. So what they did was they had to do automatic dialogue replacement. They had to voice over or read up mm. a lot of the dialogue. And um, I think actually, in retrospect, they did a really good job considering the conditions. You can't really tell that it's overdubbed that much. Well, well, I get that part. I get that, you know, it was still largely a rural country at that time. Mm. Most of the peninsula were not like Singapore, KL or Penang, right? But I like it that, not necessarily like it, but I, I appreciate how in light of that, they would stretch the boundaries of tactility of course. to the maximum, you oh, know. Yes. So they would go there. And in fact, I would say, think of as many ways as, as possible to be suggestive mm. that the impact is actually more intense than just being matter-of-fact about kissing or other mm. things, you know. Whereas you do have a tendency where a lot of, you know, maybe more less restrictive depictions of sensuality might devalue it or something. But whereas the more you can somehow go around the prohibition, the more it makes the point exactly. of, you know, of how intense the mm. sensual moment might be, you know. So for example, we go back to the example that you mentioned earlier because it's so canonical, right? Sabaria touching. Mm. The amount of time that's given to her performance in that, right, suggests a state of ecstasy mm. that may be like, you know, a, a straightforward context skin to sin might not, right? So yes. the indulgence in restraint is interesting in that sense. Uh, so it gets away with it. I think that's the interesting course, part. It finds, yeah. it finds ways to get away. There's another scene too that comes to mind. I don't know if you know this film. Speaking of S. Darmaji, Menanti Hari Esok by Jin Sam Sudin. Oh no, that I've not okay, seen. So <laughs> it stars Sarima as the wife of a teacher played by Jin Sam Sudin. And the whole film is about how he loses control of his family. It's a 1979 film, so Islamization was on the rise, urbanization was on the rise. And, you know, his daughter gets pregnant out of wedlock. He's having cancer. The wife is sexually unsatisfied and then seduces the doctor. Mm. 
mm. who's treating Jin San Su for cancer, right? So Saucy. it's just show it's just showing <laughs> how much he's losing control. So there's a scene where they have this conversation, and she says, "You know, I'm unhappy because since his illness, he hasn't been as present or attentive to me." Mm. And the way that the performance is staged, you know, shows that she's deprived, right? And then the doctor says, "I will do what I can as a doctor to treat you." Right, and then she goes, "All right, then, doctor, can you please start treating me?" And then the scene shifts to Jane Samsudin going to the mosque, praying, you know, asking mm. for God, you know, for help, given his life is out of control. Then he comes back, he stumbles into the quote-unquote affair, and the, the ah. affair is actually the doctor actually conducting a health examination oh. to the woman. Yeah. <laughs> but then the conversation <laughs> afterwards is about how he had cheated on him. Oh, yeah. But when in fact what we see is just a health examination. Oh, yeah, so, so much of it is like imbued uh, with connotation. But anyway, I digress. But, oh, it's great. It's great. Um, so uh, sorry for that tangent, Adil. But you know, you just... It ties uh, in really well, actually. <laughs> so yeah. any concluding thoughts about our discussion you know, for people to keep in mind as they look for your book? Okay, so... The main kind of takeaway from from writing this book is when we think about who we are as Malaysians or as Singaporeans, when we think about our identity, let's not think about the official discourses that define that. Let's start thinking about the things that we hide. Let's start mm. thinking about the taboos that we put away. Let's start looking for the practices that we do that we're embarrassed about. You know, so I mean, very much the impetus of this book arose out of my own embarrassment for not knowing mm. about such music. And through that, I think we can start to understand ourselves better and we can start to get at the truth of what our culture is and mm. how we negotiate the rest of our lives as Malaysians. Yeah. One of the things I tell people when they ask me why I subject myself to the delayed torture of trying to do a PhD <laughs> is because... Malaysia is so under-researched, mm. you know, and everything is ripe for first-time discovery, oh, right? Yeah. Um, and even the things that are researched, you know, are not necessarily given the fair treatment that they deserve, mm -hmm. you know, uh, especially for our entertainment, which remains to be properly, like, reflected on, you know. So uh, I echo that. I think there's a lot to be discovered, and I think we're better off as people socialise in this context, you know, when we do discover it and when we do understand what we've had before and we can turn to the world with fresher eyes and of appreciate course. it more, you know, especially music, something that we're always close to. Now, before we wrap up our recommendations, obviously your book is on my <laughs> list. It's Cosmopolitan Intimacies, Malay Film Music of the Independence Era by Adil Johan. Uh, it's uh, released just last week. So it's a 2018 publication by NUS Press Singapore. You can get it, I guess, at major bookstores in KL? Well, you will be able to get it at Gerak Budaya, okay. both in PJ and in Malaysia, which, by the way, are my favourite bookstores. Shout out to Gareth Edwards of Gerak Budaya in Penang and, of course, to Pat Chong in Wonderful. Gerak Budaya. PJ. Um, of course, online you can order it at nuspress.nus.edu.sg. I've just checked the website and the books there is being displayed. Um, yeah, you want more recommendations? Here we go. Okay. Of course. I actually brought some books for you, Fuad. Wonderful. Uh, two are digital and one is uh, physical. <laughs> so the physical book I'm holding in my hand is a book written in the 1990 by a close family friend and esteemed Malaysian academic, Wazir Jahan Karim. The book is called Emotions of Culture, a Malay Perspective. So this Wonderful. also formed part of my framework. Yeah, uh, it's a great book. I love, I love her work. It's a great book. It explores uh, a Malay emotions and culture through an anthropological lens. Uh, of course, I'm going to also give a big shout out to my prof, 
who's at King's College London, Martin Stokes, the book The Republic of Love, Cultural Intimacy in Turkish Popular Music. It's an amazing book. And I think there's so many parallels between Turkish popular culture and popular music with the Malaysian experience, especially with regards to secularism versus Islam, mm. modernity versus tradition. And lastly, the kind of foundational text for my conceptual framework is cultural intimacy, social poetics and the real life of states, societies and institutions by Michael Herzfeld. Mm. Yeah, so that's kind of like a landmark book for the development of theories on cultural intimacy if you're interested in what we've talked about. I think I personally am, especially that third suggestion. Uh, you also have a brand new Twitter account. Oh yeah, it's uh, Adil J 83 Okay, wonderful. <laughs> Thanks so much Adil, we'd love to have you again to talk about other stuff as well. Sure. Uh, and I'm definitely going back to look at my films with you know, keener interests given the stuff that we've learned through this conversation. You can email the show bfmnightschool.gmail.com Look us up on Facebook too. Or download our app at the Apple App Store and Google Play. I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahman, once again joined by Adil Johan, and this was Night School at BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.